Well, hello, friends. My name is Brad, and I'm part of the teaching and leadership team here at Jericho Ridge Community Church. And I want to welcome you uh, into this online space for our Easter Sunday gathering together. Uh, now, even though that the weather is turning nicer, I don't know about you, but at our house, we are watching more movies together these days. And so I want you to think about a movie that you have watched, either recently or in the distant past, that had a surprise ending or a twist of some kind. All right, so just hold that movie in your mind. I know uh, for me, I think back to the very first movie that I went to see in a movie theater, Disney's movie Bambi. Not the 1945 version. I do have some gray hair, but I'm not that old. This was the 1982 version. And I can distinctly remember, first and foremost, being absolutely shocked, and I do have to tell you this is a spoiler alert if you haven't seen this movie yet, that I, I remember just thinking, oh my goodness, Bambi's mother dies. Like that was a real shock for me to process. And then the ending, when the forest fire starts to rage beyond the camp, and then uh, at the end we see Bambi just being saved from that, that was a real sort of traumatic, scarring moment uh, for me. In fact, in a 2007 article, Time magazine listed the movie Bambi as one of the top 25 horror movies of all time. Because when Time interviewed people, they said Bambi still has a primal shock that haunts oldsters who saw it 40, 50, or even 65 years ago. Another movie that, for me, from Disney, had an ending that shocked me was the movie Old Yeller. Now this is a dog movie where we fall in love with this mischievous, good-natured golden lab retriever. And I had forgotten until recently, this is a movie for our times because there's a communicable viral disease spreading throughout the neighborhood. And the family cow contracts it. The disease is rabies and it has to be disposed of. And as the family's doing this, a wolf comes in and attacks, and Old Yeller comes in, saves the family, but in the process gets bit on the neck by the wolf, and the wolf is rabid, and so what do they do? They place the dog in quarantine in order to see if it has the disease. And it does, and spoiler alert number two for your morning, the dog has to be put down. And still to this day, I cannot watch that movie without tearing up because I did not expect that to happen. What about you? What movies have you seen or watched where the ending is not quite what you expected that it would be? If you're joining us live, I'd invite you to right now go into the chat function on YouTube and just put a title of a movie in there that surprised you and why the ending shocked you so much. It'll be interesting to see what you have to contribute to the conversation. I think that part of our desire for happy endings is a good thing. We want good to triumph over evil. 
And often at Easter, this is the message that is brought forward for us to think about. The resurrection and the victory that God won over the powers of evil and darkness by Jesus' death on Good Friday and by the resurrection on Easter Sunday. But one of the gospel accounts of Jesus' life that we've been studying here at Jericho Ridge, the gospel of Mark, doesn't quite have the same happy ending to the Easter story that you'll find in the other three. Mark's gospel, another spoiler alert, ends with a decidedly different tone. It's a bit of a surprise ending that should cause us to ask questions about what happened and about our response to it in our lives and in our world today collectively. And so let's look together at Mark's unique telling of that first Easter Sunday morning. I want to thank the Kwan family for reading the text for us so capably from Mark chapter 16. And as you engage with Mark 16, the very first thing that you notice is these women, Mary, Mary, and Salome. They are the first ones to head out very early in the morning to the location of Jesus' tomb. On Good Friday, after the crucifixion, Jesus' body was disposed of by Roman soldiers. And so the women, though it was in their hearts to do so, were unable to perform a traditional burial rite for Jesus. Uh, Mark 15, 47 tells us that Mary and Mary saw where the body was placed, and so they knew where to go back to on this morning. And so in their minds, the very least that they could do to express their love for Jesus was to try and gain access to the gravesite and to try and anoint Jesus' body with the customary first-century mix of burial spices. So they start on their way very early in the morning. And I don't know whether the coffee hadn't kicked in yet, but as they begin to wake up, they begin to realize, oh, we're going to have a problem when we get to the tomb. Because the first problem they're going to have is there is a large, heavy stone placed in front of the entrance to the tomb. Ancient tombs were a little bit more like caves than they are like our modern burial sites. And so large stones, like this one, were rolled in front of the graves. And they were identified, placed there, to keep grave robberies from happening. And they were really heavy. And so these women realized, as they're on their way, I don't know what we're going to do when we get there. The three of us might not be able to move this thing. But despite their identifying of the obstacle, I kind of love their scrappy persistence. They just decide, you know what, we're going to keep going anyways. And when the women arrive, to their amazement, the stone is already rolled aside. And then they do something that I would not do. And that is, they choose to go into the tomb. And once they're inside the tomb, the text says that they encounter their second problem. And that is, problem number two, the body that they expect to anoint is not present. Instead of a recently deceased 
body, they encounter a divine messenger, an angel. And this, of course, shocks the women. And then the angel begins to speak to them and gives them a message. Look with me at Mark chapter 16, verse 6. I'm reading from the New Living Translation. The angel said, don't be alarmed. You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He isn't here. He is risen, or he has been raised from the dead. Look, this is where they laid his body. The first words that the angel addresses, and the first issue the angel addresses is their fear. And then quickly the angel reorients them toward the reality of hope. Dr. James Edwards, in his commentary, notes on this text that the woman, the women were intent on their funeral errand. They were preoccupied with death. But all of their preparations leave them unprepared or underprepared for the reality that they encounter. What they intend as a terminal visit becomes instead a commencement. The Jesus that they are looking for cannot be enshrined in a safe place. And the Jesus that they are looking for cannot be found. The living are consumed with death, but the crucified and risen one, Jesus, is consumed with life. And friends, that is the heart of the Easter message. And indeed, that is the heart of the Christian faith. The divine declaration is that the risen one is the crucified one. Jesus is not, and the story of Jesus' resurrection is not a spiritual analogy about newness of life. The angel reminds the women that Jesus of Nazareth, the Jesus that they knew, that they saw crucified, that they witnessed his burial, this is the one that they knew and loved, who is the one who has been raised by the dead. And the angel takes up then both sides of the Easter story and the Easter event and fuses them together with this sense of continuity, inseparable continuity between the risen Jesus and the crucified Jesus. Because friends, there is no and cannot be Easter Sunday without the passing through the agony of the cross of Calvary. We cannot know resurrection until we taste of death. And friends, this is true of our own lives as well. Each of us must come to terms with the reality that the pathway for each and every human being that has ever lived and that ever will live ends at the grave. And that can be very sobering for us. And it can be frightening for us to come to terms with. But the message of Easter and the hope of Easter is that just like Jesus Christ was raised, you and I also can experience resurrection.
One of the early Christian leaders, the Apostle Paul, writing a few short decades after the resurrection event, says it this way in 1 Corinthians 15, 42. In the same way with the resurrection of the dead, our earthly bodies are planted in the ground when we die, but they will be raised to life forever. See, friends, what you and I need to come to terms with personally is that there is no resurrection without death. First and foremost, this death is a dying to self, a dying to self-righteousness, a dying to self-reliance, an acknowledgement that the paths that you and I have been walking in our lives and that we have been walking as humans and as individuals are ultimately unfulfilling and unsustainable, and they do and will end in death. And the invitation of Easter is to get ahead of that and to die to them already. Romans 6 talks about a death to self, a death to sin, and an aliveness to the work of God and the work of Christ Jesus. The pathway to resurrection always leads through death. And if you don't have that sense today of a living hope, a vibrant and eternal hope, then friends, today is the day that I want to extend an invitation to you to start walking out a new path that leads you away from death and leads you to life and peace, not just someday, but today. And if you want to start walking that, I invite you to reach out to us. Get in touch. You can email me, and I'd love to start a conversation with you about that. We haven't, though, yet reached the end of Mark's unusual story. See, the women have become witnesses to an empty tomb. But the key question now becomes, what will they do? What happens next? Let's look with me with what the angel tells them in Mark 16, verse 7. Now go and tell his disciples, who have at this point forsaken and abandoned him, including Peter, that Jesus is going ahead of you to Galilee, which he told them before he died. You will see him there just as he told you before he died. The angel gives the women not just information about Jesus and his resurrection, but also an assignment. They receive a commission. They have heard about the resurrection. They have seen with their eyes that the tomb is empty. Now they are invited to go and tell. The women receive an invitational imperative to bear witness to that which they have seen. And you might say, well, what's an invitational imperative? Now, kids, you've been placed into online learning environments in this season. So today, this is your grammar slash linguistics block for today. The statement that the angel makes is a future indicative used as an imperative. That's a very fancy way of saying you must do this. As in, tomorrow, you must take a shower 
and go outside. But in this, just like when your parents say to you, you must take a shower, there's still a choice to be made. Mark has structured his narrative in such a way that we're drawn into it, not just as dispassionate readers, but as participants in the story. Mark wants you and I to actually wrestle with the same question and the same invitational imperative. You see, if you've read this, we also have seen. We also have heard. And so the question becomes, do you and I intend to go and tell? And this is where Mark's ending actually gets a little bit odd. If he concluded with verse 7, it would be challenging, it would be intriguing, but not particularly troubling. But the earliest and most reliable ancient manuscripts that we have of Mark's gospel, and not with verse 7, but with verse 8. Let's keep reading. So the woman fled from the tomb, trembling and bewildered, and they said nothing to anyone because they were too frightened. There's a level of irony here to me as I read this. See, after being brave enough to be willing to confront Roman soldiers who would have been guarding the tomb and ask for permission to anoint a dead body, and after being bold enough to actually press past the entrance and go into a tomb, and after being bold enough to engage in a dialogue with angels, now the women are frightened. They don't leave the grave with a look of joyous rapture and delight to rush out and tell other people about the good news that they have found. It says that they leave and said nothing to anyone because they're frightened. It's not exactly a happy, picture-perfect ending, is it? And so we're left to ask, why would Mark conclude his gospel in this way? I can remember growing up, and we would go down to the library, and one of the books that I looked forward to grabbing the latest installment of was a series called Choose Your Own Adventure. And what I loved about the Choose Your Own Adventure books was that instead of it leaving it to the author, I, as the reader, had a sense of control over how the story could go. I could choose my response to a given situation, if you remember those books, and then the choice determined the outcome or the next step of the story. And in many ways, that seems to be exactly what Mark is doing by finishing without a tidy, happy ending. In addition to mirroring real life, where you and I know full well that life does not, from personal experiences, always experience rainbows and unicorns, Mark is doing something quite powerful. In finishing on this note, 
Anabaptist scholar Tim Gettert says that Mark is confronting us with readers, as readers, with an opportunity and also with choices that close, that give us the ability, we can't just close the book on Mark's gospel and say, oh, I'm so glad that ended well. Mark is actually drawing us into the story. And the reason maybe that Mark is doing this is because the story that God is writing in God's world actually does not finish at the empty tomb. The story of God's love, the story of God's redemption of all things, the story of God's love and care for God's world and for you and for those around you is still being written. But there's a catch. And the catch is that there will only be more to this story if we take up the invitation to follow Jesus as participants in it. There's only going to be more to the story of God's work in God's world if you and I choose to take our place in this adventure and to invite others to bear witness to God's work in our lives in the world. There will only be more to the story if you and I choose to follow Jesus into places of despair and see God's wondrous hope break through. There's only going to be more to the story if you and I choose to follow Jesus into places where there's fear in our own hearts and to ask God to meet us there and let Christ's love win the day. There will only be more to this story if we choose to follow Jesus into places of anxiety and be those who bring peace and who bring hope and who bring love to soothe troubled hearts and to troubled minds. And that, friends, is what it means to be a Christian. That is our mission, church, should we choose to accept it, to love others not only in words, but also in deeds. And so this Easter, if you want to see Jesus, then follow where he leads. This is the end of Mark's story because it's actually the beginning of your and my discipleship. The resurrection does not magically transform fear into faith, but it does hold out the possibility that fallible humans like you and I can be transformed into authentic followers of Jesus, into messengers of hope for a world that needs to hear it. I want to invite you to pause with me during this visual prayer and invite God to speak to you about some specific steps that you can take this week to be a good news, Easter-y kind of person.